All right, and uh, so we're going to be covering, I'm backtracking this evening, so we are looking at words related to uh, soteriology. We're looking at biblical terminology related to soteriology, and I've been working through my notes. I'm currently up to about 185 pages. I think by the time I finish my notes, I think uh, I'll probably be somewhere around the 200 to 225 mark. It just depends. But uh, we've considered a number of doctrines. We've looked at uh, the, uh, the definition of soteriology uh, from past lessons. We did a, uh, a, a biblical analysis of the words uh, related to soteriology, which is the study of salvation. And we looked at the role of each of the members of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We looked at how God the Father planned our salvation from eternity past, how he commissioned the Son and sent the Son into the world. We saw how the second member of the Trinity, God the Son, uh, came into the world and took upon himself humanity. That was nearly 2,000 years ago when uh, God the Son added humanity to himself. We understand this to be the doctrine of the hypostatic union. The doctrine of the hypostatic union teaches that Jesus is undiminished deity combined together forever with perfect humanity. Uh, He is at one and the same time God and man. He is the theanthropic person. When he came into the world, he came into the world by means of virgin conception. This was to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah uh, 7.14. And uh, he also uh, lived a perfectly righteous life. We looked at passages like 2 Corinthians 5.21, Hebrews 4.15, 1 John 3.5, and others to talk about his sinless life. And ultimately, Christ went to the cross, and he died a death he did not deserve in order that we might have a life that we could never earn, because we cannot earn salvation. And that's part of what we'll hit this evening. We'll look at a number of passages related to that. Um, And we also looked at the role of God the Holy Spirit. We looked at the convicting role of the Holy Spirit and how he convicts us primarily of the sin of unbelief. And uh, we also looked at the role of the Holy Spirit who regenerates us, who indwells us, who gives us a spiritual gift uh, and enables us uh, not only from phase one of the Christian life, but phase two. We talked about the different phases of uh, salvation. Phase one is our justification. That is where we are at a moment in time declared right in the sight of God. That's uh, sometimes referred to as forensic justification, where we are declared right in the presence of God. Uh, And this because the very righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us. That is a single occurrence. It is an act that occurs at a moment in time. Phase two of the Christian life is our sanctification, that is our spiritual growth. It's the the advance that we make as Christians from the time of our uh, salvation until we leave this world by death or by rapture. And, uh, of course, that's the objective of the Christian life is to advance to spiritual maturity, that we might glorify God and edify others, and that we might live out the best possible life that we can live in this world. And then phase three of the Christian life is our glorification. That's when we leave this world and enter into the eternal state. Uh, These are uh, sometimes referred to as um, deliverance from the penalty of sin. That's phase one, our justification. Uh, uh, Deliverance from the power of sin. That's phase two, our sanctification. And ultimately, deliverance from the presence of sin. That's phase three, our glorification. 
And so we've talked about these things in the past. So uh, past lessons will cover a lot of that material. And we, we've been mining this very carefully. We've been doing a deep dive into this study of uh, soteriology. And as I mentioned before, soteriology is the study of salvation. It derives from two Greek words. The first is the Greek word soter, which means savior. And logos, which means the study of or a word about something. And so soteriology is the study of salvation. And if you ever pick up a systematic theology and you read through the table of contents, you will see generally uh, bibliology, theology proper. Uh, You will see things like, uh, if it's a good systematic theology, it will have an Israelology. Uh, But you will see things like uh, angelology, satanology, demonology, hamartiology, which is the study of sin. Uh, You'll see uh, ecclesiology, the study of the church. You'll see eschatology, the study of final things. But soteriology is a large section in any systematic theology. And, uh, And so that's what we're doing is we're studying that particular theological subject. Uh, And so in tonight's lesson, we're going to talk about the assurance of salvation, the assurance of salvation. Now, I am backtracking a little bit because I included this at the last minute. Uh, We covered um, uh, eternal life last week. It was eternal life, wasn't it? Uh, Last week, and then uh, we were going to jump into forgiveness. And then I thought, well, let's backtrack and cover assurance, and then next week we'll pick up and talk about forgiveness. So let me go ahead and jump into the notes here, and you'll have to hold on fast because I'll be chasing down a lot of scripture references here, and it'll pop on the screen, uh, so you should be able to follow along with me. Now, at the moment of faith in Christ, we have eternal life. At the moment of faith in Christ, we have eternal life. That was one of the things that I emphasized last week. In John 10, 28, Jesus said, "...and I give eternal life to them." and they shall never perish. And the use of the verb didomi, the Greek verb didomi, uh, is a present active indicative. And so eternal life is what we receive at the moment of salvation. When Jesus says, I give, when he uses the Greek verb didomi, again, it's a present active indicative. The present tense is a right now truth. Now, eternal life is not what we can have, it's what we have at the moment of faith in Christ. Now, it finds its fullest expression when we leave this world and enter into the eternal state, but it is nonetheless a right now truth. The active voice means the subject produces the action of the verb. And so Jesus says, I give. He is the one who gives eternal life. And the indicative mood is simply declarative uh, for a statement of fact. And uh, so, again, we talked about this last week, that at the moment of faith in Christ we have eternal life. Now, this is a fact, even if we don't fully understand that. I say that because my grandmother led me to Christ when I was eight, and, uh, you know, how much, how much Bible doctrine is circulating in the, in the, in the mind of an eight-year-old? Well, not much. I was concerned about my action figures, my G.I. Joe and uh, other, other uh, right? Yeah. Uh, so I was more concerned with BB guns and um, uh, catching uh, snakes and that sort of thing. But my grandmother was a very, very godly woman, and she 
she was very clear on the gospel, and she explained it to me at a very young age, uh, again, when I was eight, and uh, so she led me to Christ, and I came to believe in Christ, that he died for my sins, that, uh, that he was buried, that he was raised again on the third day, and that if I would place my trust in him, that I would have forgiveness of sins, that I would have eternal life, and that I would not go to the lake of fire. And so she was a very, very good communicator of Bible doctrine, and she communicated these things to me. And I, I was very blessed to have her in my life for two years before everything fell apart, um, and my life went into the tank shortly after that and played the prodigal son for a while, but um, I think we all have done that to some degree in various times in our life. But I really didn't understand. Now, I had eternal life at that moment. I didn't fully understand it, and that's one of those things where we grow into that as we develop in our understanding of the Word of God. So, again, eternal life is what we have. Now, this is a fact, even if we don't fully understand it. In truth, most people will not understand what they have from God or find assurance of their salvation until they've studied God's Word and learned to live by faith. And remember that it's always in that order, because you cannot live what you do not know. And learning God's word necessarily precedes living God's will. It's always in that order. That's why we talk about Matthew 7, 24, where Jesus said, The man who hears my words, well, that's the acquisition of divine viewpoint. The man who hears my words and does them, and it's that application Because, again, you cannot live what you do not know. So learning God's word necessarily precedes living God's will. Uh, So Jesus said, The man who hears my words and does them shall be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. But then Jesus says a few verses later, he says, But the man who hears my words, that is, takes in, he, he he, he has the acquisition of divine viewpoint, but does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And we talked about this, how it is possible to take in the word of God. It is possible to be in possession of divine viewpoint and not apply it. And that's why James 1.22 tells us, Be ye doers of the word, and not merely hearers only. And later on in James 4, he uh, he says, To him who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him... It is sin. So it is possible to know the right thing to do, to possess divine viewpoint and know the right thing to do and not do it. And uh, and so that is possible. So it's always, again, in that order. So again, in truth, um, uh, most people will not understand what they have from God or find assurance of their salvation until they've studied God's word and learned to live by faith. And that walk of faith is always key, isn't it? It's, it's It's a very, very critical element to the Christian life. And uh, we we recently spent some lessons talking about faith, uh, uh, and so we've we've gone through that. We did a a, a a word analysis here recently. Now, doctrinal ignorance and or false teaching will lead to fear and doubt. Now, for those who have trusted Christ as their Savior, subsequent knowledge of God's word and trust and trust in it will yield assurance of their salvation. It's always that case uh, where, as we take in the Word of God, uh, it really stabilizes the soul. And one of the things that I've talked about before is that the stability of the Christian is predicated to a large degree on the biblical content and continuity of a person's thinking. I'll say that again. The stability of a Christian is predicated to a large degree 
on the biblical content and continuity of a person's thinking. You see, it's not only the content of what we think, but the continuity, what we keep on thinking, that results in stability within our soul. And, uh, and that's, just, that's just one of those things, you know, it's just, it's, it's where's your focus, because it's easy to focus on the things of this world. And that's why I love Isaiah 26, 3, which says, The mind that is stayed upon thee shall be kept in perfect peace, because he trusts in thee. The mind that is stayed upon thee shall be kept in perfect peace, because he trusts in thee. And when your mind is upon the Lord, you have that experiential peace that goes on in your soul. You know what I'm talking about. If When you learn the word and you live the word, you have that stability within your soul. And remember that adversity is inevitable, but stress is optional. Uh, and so as a believer, you have the option uh, to build that doctrinal fortress within your soul, uh, which gives you that cognitive and emotional stability within a person. And this grows over time. The more that you take in the Word of God and the more you apply it to your life, uh, the more you will find stability, uh, again, within your soul. Uh, So again, for those who have trusted Christ as their Savior, subsequent knowledge of God's Word and trust in it will yield assurance of their salvation. And as one advances spiritually, there will also be a noticeable change within. And this, too, may provide a subjective assurance of salvation. Now hold on, we're going to chase down a lot of scriptures here. So let's talk first about objective assurance of salvation. Objective assurance of salvation. Now, the Bible reveals that God is absolutely righteous and set apart from all that is sinful. Psalm 11 says, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. Psalm 99.9, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for holy is the Lord our God. Habakkuk 1.13 says, your eyes are too pure to approve evil. And you cannot look on wickedness with favor. You cannot. And that is one of the things about the holiness of God, that attribute of God. And remember that God has many attributes. Uh, We think about his omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, righteousness, justice, sovereignty, love, immutability, veracity, eternal life, graciousness, that he is loving and kind and merciful. And we think about those attributes of God and how they all work together Uh, And I think of very much like a spider's web. You pull on one strand and the whole thing moves. Because when you talk about any one of the attributes of God, it, it, it interacts with all the other attributes. And I had to develop this when I was doing my doctoral dissertation because I wrote my dissertation on the attribute of God's righteousness. And, uh, and that was a very, very uh, a wonderful study. I thoroughly enjoyed it, uh, and I got, a, I got a good grade on that, uh, so I was very happy to complete that. But, but it was one of those things where you really get into studying the attributes of God, and uh, to me that's just so fascinating. Uh, and I'll tell you, it's one, it's, it was probably one of the most um, rewarding studies I think I've ever done as a Christian is really to get into looking at the attributes of God. But again, when you think about God's attribute of righteousness, and it always works together really in tandem with his attribute of justice. Those, those work together in tandem with each other. Because what the righteousness of God approves of, the justice of God will bless. But what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God will condemn. And when you think about righteousness, you think about that, that attribute of God, uh, that moral quality of God. Uh, that serves as the standard 
uh, for what is right, okay, the very attribute itself, the very characteristic of God, but the justice is his action. It's how he acts based upon what he approves or what he rejects. Uh, but when you see passages like Habakkuk 1.13 where it says, your eyes are too pure to approve evil and you cannot look on wickedness with favor, 1 John 1.5, that this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. So not only is God righteous and completely set apart from all that is sinful, but he hates and condemns sin. Deuteronomy 25.16 says, For everyone who does these things, that is, these wicked acts, everyone who acts unjustly is an abomination of the Lord your God. Psalm 5.5, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. Psalm 45.7 says, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Um. Let me jump over to Proverbs 15.9. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Proverbs uh, 15.26. Evil plans are an abomination of the Lord. Proverbs 20 verse 9. Who can say I have cleansed my heart? I am pure from sin. Well, the honest person <laughs> would say, uh, no, I haven't. And the reality is, is that no one can. Zechariah 8:17 and let none of you devise evil in your heart against another and do not love perjury for all these things are what I hate declares the Lord. Of course we think of Romans 1:18 where it says for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Colossians 3:6 for it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And Hebrews 1.9, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. So when we think about God and we think about him being absolutely righteous and how uh, he can only do one thing with sin, and that is condemn it. Now, he can either condemn it in the offender or he can judge our sin in a substitute, and we've gone over this. In fact, we spent a night talking about two Greek prepositions. We talked about the Greek preposition huper, as well as the Greek preposition anti, the stronger of the two. And we looked at a number of passages, Romans 5, 8, 1 Peter 3, 18, and a few other passages, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. And we looked at the use of those Greek prepositions and how when applied to Christ, it explains that Christ is our substitute that he died for us, that he died in our place. So when we see, when we think about the cross, uh, though a number of attributes come into play at the cross, uh, really two stand out. One is the righteousness of God and the other is the love of God. Because at the cross, God judged our sin as his righteousness required. But at the cross, he also demonstrates his love towards us, the sinner. And so we see righteousness and love coalesce there at the cross. We see it as a place of judgment. We see it as a place of wrath, and we should see it as that. But we should also see it as a place of love, because there Christ went and laid down his life, and he died in our place, the just for the unjust, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.18. So we see where God is righteous and holy and he condemns sin. Now the problem for us 
is that all mankind is sinful. Now, the Bible uh, does not give a flattering view of mankind. Uh, Now, people may flatter themselves, and they may boast about their accomplishments, and uh, but the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible does not present that uh, rosy glow picture of mankind. Genesis 6, 5, it says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Uh, the Lord told Noah in uh, Genesis 8, 1, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And if you ever study, by the way, systematic theology, you will cover a section in anthropology, biblical anthropology, which talks about the nature of man, uh, the constitutionality of man, the makeup of man, how we are both physical and immaterial. Uh, But one of the things is that we are born into this world uh, sinners. We are sinners in Adam, sinners by nature, and sinners by choice. And so we come into this world with a sin nature. We come into this world with a bent, a proclivity to sin and to act contrary to the character and to the will of God. And so these are the things that are pointed out about humanity. 1 Kings 8.46 says, And when they sin against you, and then you have this parenthetical clause here, For there is no man who does not sin. There is no man who does not sin. Psalm 143, verse 2, For in your sight no man living is righteous. In your sight no man living is righteous. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on the earth who continually does good and who never sins. Isaiah 59, 2, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear you. Isaiah 64, 6, for all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And I've mentioned before that the use of the term filthy garment there, ida, uh, literally means a menstrual garment. Uh, something uh, that you understand. Sometimes the translators will translate it uh, somewhat nicely, uh, but it loses the punch of what the original Hebrew or Greek may say. Uh, Just like when over in Philippians, Paul talks about his past, and and he says he counts it all but rubbish, and he uses the Greek word skubalon. Well, rubbish is a is a, is a nice little translation, but it doesn't quite communicate the use of the Greek word skubalon, which literally means fecal matter. And so you, you get the idea of what Paul was saying. Uh, he's using very uh, graphic language there. And sometimes the translators don't, well, they spare us. <laughs> but I think it was designed to be, I think it was designed to have that punch. And I think sometimes we, we soften it a little bit. Um, Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Uh, Romans 3.10, That there is none righteous, not even one. Ephesians 2.1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. 1 John 1.8, where John writes, he says, If we say that we have no sin, and remember that the use of the word sin there translates the use of the Greek word hamartia. It's the word we get for hamartiology. But uh, it's, it's a noun. And so when you think of a noun, you think of a person, place, or 
thing. So when John says, if we say that we have no sin, he's talking about the sin nature. But then down in verse 10, he says, if we say that we have not sinned, and there he uses the uh, verb, hamartano, which refers to our activity, our production of the will. Uh, so there he talks about both the sin nature and he talks about the, the practice of sin. Uh, so you get the idea, don't you, that God is righteous, God is holy, he cannot look on wickedness with favor, and here we are, these producers of evil and sin and wickedness, and so it puts us in a bit of a difficult spot. Um, and really to complicate the matter is that we cannot save ourselves. You see, we can produce sin, but we can't fix the problem of sin. Only God can fix the problem of sin. So not only are we sinful, but our good works have no saving value before the Lord. Remember Romans 4, 4, and 5. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but as what is due. Now I covered this in a past lesson, and we might, uh, we might understand this passage to read as, to the one who works a 40-hour work week, his wage, excuse me, or his paycheck is not considered a gift, <laughs> but what is due to him. You see, when I work every two weeks at my, uh, at my job, uh, because I have a full-time job, and when I work, I put my employer in debt, and every two weeks my employer takes money from their account and puts it into my checking account, and they alleviate the debt. And then next week we pick up and we start the process all over again. But when they, when they give me my paycheck, they're not being kind. That it's not grace. That's not grace. Uh, they're giving me what is due to me. You see. Now, what happens is, is people take that paradigm, which is valid, by the way. Don't misunderstand me. That's a valid paradigm in a way of thinking in the world of of, of mankind. We live in a in a meritocratic system. At least we do for the moment, until unless we go socialist or something, which we kind of seem to be leaning that way nationally, unfortunately. Um, but uh, we still live to a large degree in a meritocracy where, where you are compensated for your work, and that's valid. That's valid. But we cannot take that paradigm and bring it to God and apply it to salvation. That's, that's a different paradigm. That's a grace paradigm. And so works don't, uh, don't uh, apply to a grace system. And this is important to understand because... When I really began to advance in my Christian life was when I really began to lay hold of the concept of grace. And it was Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer who, uh, who really opened the door for me uh, through, his, uh, through his writings. And then uh, Dr. Charles Ryrie was another one uh, who really uh, opened that door for me. And so when I really came to understand grace, uh, I'll tell you, that just my whole worldview just shifted at that moment. Uh, because you really learn to relax. You really learn to just trust in the Lord. And so when you begin to think in terms of grace, uh, which I like the acronym, it's God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. I think that that's a, a good way to think about it. But, uh, but it really shifts uh, our whole way of thinking. Now, verse 5 of Romans 4 says, but to the one who does not work, see that? but believes in him who justifies who? The ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. Now, we're going to spend a night here in the, in the upcoming weeks where we're going to spend a whole evening talking about imputed righteousness. That also is an important doctrine. 
But I'm trying to point out here that we are not saved by good works. Galatians 2.16 says, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace, codis, unmerited favor, unwarranted love, undeserved kindness, by the grace of God, by grace you have been saved through faith, and faith does not save, Christ saves. Faith is merely the instrument by which we receive or lay hold of that salvation. So it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, underscore that, highlight that, put little asterisks around it, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Salvation is a gift paid in full by the Lord Jesus Christ uh, nearly 2,000 years ago when he hung between heaven and earth and he bore our sin upon the cross. Uh, our salvation, because in John 19.30, the last thing that Jesus said, uh, he said one word in the Greek, it's tetelestai. Now, that is in the perfect tense, and it's translated as it is finished. You see, our salvation was finished at the cross, and there is absolutely nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing, that we bring uh, to our salvation. If there's anything we contribute to, to, to the cross, it's sin and death. And that's not a compliment. That doesn't help us, okay? Uh, but he took our sins upon us, and he bore the wrath of God in our place, the just for the unjust, uh, such that when we receive salvation, it is a gift. And listen, if you have to work for it, it's not a gift. It means you bought it. It means you, you paid for it. Now listen, that's not how it works. It's a gift. And don't try to work for it. Just accept it. Now listen, good works should follow salvation. They should. But they are never the condition of it. Let me say that again. Good works should follow salvation. Uh, but they are never the condition of it. Never. Uh, so uh, we are saved uh, by the grace of God. It is, not, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one shall boast. So our salvation was accomplished 100% by Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins. And remember that salvation is never what we do for God. Salvation is never what we do for God, but what he's done for us at the cross. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet, what? Sinners. Christ died for us. Not when we were sweet and lovely and wonderful and charming, because we were not and we are not. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we looked at the use of the Greek preposition huper, uh, translated for. Christ died as a substitute for us. Romans 6.10, and the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Listen, uh, all of our sins were judged at the cross. It was a one and done deal. 
And so he paid the penalty for our sins. There's nothing else for us to pay. 1 Peter 3.18, that Christ also died for sins once for all. And notice, the just for the unjust. And there's the use of the word uh, huper, uh, H-U-P-E-R, that Greek preposition there translated uh, for, and it's the preposition of substitution. And so he died as the just as a substitute for the unjust. That's me, that's you, that's all humanity. To what end? So that he might bring us to God. So that he might bring us to God. Now God offers to justify and save us freely as a gift, totally apart from any good works we may perform. Romans 3.24, that we are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. And remember that the blood of Christ is the coin of the heavenly realm that the Father accepts as payment for our sin debt. It is the only coin, it is the only currency that the Father accepts as payment for our sin debt. And Christ paid it all. And so we are justified as a gift by his grace. And Romans 3.28, which says, uh, if I can get over there, that we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now, God's salvation comes to us who have trusted in Christ as our Savior. And that really is the question, is have you trusted in Christ as your Savior. You see, John 3, 15 through 18 says, whoever believes in him, uh, whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have ever, but shall have eternal life. John 6, 40, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And the issue is faith alone in Christ alone. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I just wrote an article on that for my blog here just recently, and I camped on that issue. Uh, But the issue is faith alone in Christ alone. And by the way, John, and I've taught through the Gospel of John a few times, but John uses the Greek verb pastuo to believe 98 times. And, uh, and so John, and that's more than the other three gospel writers combined. And John really makes believe the issue. And by the way, the gospel of John never once uses the word repent. Now, I think repentance is implied because I think at the moment of faith in Christ, you've changed your mind about something because the use of the Greek word uh, metanoeo or metanos means literally to change the mind. Uh, and so if you change your mind, then it's like two sides of a coin. Uh, if you've believed, well, it means you changed your mind and you've trusted in Christ as your Savior. John 10, 28, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. Uh, John eleven twenty five. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Acts four twelve. there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And of course, John 16, 31, when the Philippian jailer 
asked Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul came back and said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, uh, and you will be saved. And believing in Christ simply means that we trust him to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves to save us. Uh, Because if we could save ourselves, then Christ would have never had to have come and died. But his death is a testimony of the fact of this thing which we cannot do. Again, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. So salvation means that we have forgiveness of sins, we have the gift of righteousness, we have eternal life, and that we are part of the family of God. And I've talked about this at length too. Because at the moment of faith in Christ, according to Colossians 1, 13 and 14, we have been transferred from Satan's domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. We become children of the living God. We become brothers and sisters to the King of kings and Lord of lords. We become part of the royal family of God. Now, the issue for us at that moment is, according to Ephesians 4, 1 and 2, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. And that means that your performance uh, as a believer needs to match your position in Christ. And so 1 John 3, 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. And we have been blessed with many spiritual blessings and that we will never, never face condemnation. Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation. For who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. Now that prepositional phrase, in Christo, is very theologically rich. It is profoundly theological rich. Uh, And we will talk about that at a future lesson. So when we understand these truths by studying Scripture and when we accept them by faith, we have assurance of our salvation because we trust God and His Word. And by the way, the Word of God is truth. In fact, it literally defines reality. Psalm 119, verse 160 says, The sum of your word is truth. The sum of your word is truth. John 17, 17, I love this, where Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. I love that. Sanctify them in the truth, because that's how you advance as a Christian. That's all right. You do that as a believer, but you cannot grow spiritually apart from the intake and the application of the Word of God to life. It's impossible. You have to take in the Word of God. And, and so he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. Now, concerning our salvation, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 1.12, he says, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted uh, to him until that day. Now, Paul is convinced uh, and Paul uh, has stability here. He is, he's absolutely confident regarding his relationship with God. He's convinced that God is able to guard, he says, what I have entrusted to him until that day. And of course, the Apostle John wrote that in 1 John 5, 11 and 12, that God has given us eternal life. And, that, and again, we, it's something that we have. Eternal life is not what we can have down the road, it's what we have now. That God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. 
And he who has the Son has the life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Now, listen, the assurance of our salvation does not come by looking to ourselves. And I know people who spend a lot of their time as fruit inspectors. Uh, and listen, I, I'm about Christian fruit. I, listen, I think we are called to advance to spiritual maturity. And when you advance, you will hit a place where you will begin to manifest fruit. It will happen. It will happen. It should happen in the life of the growing believer. But the fruit production in the life of a believer is not always consistent because we sin. And we break fellowship with God. And so uh, the assurance of salvation, again, does not come by looking to ourselves, but to the one who saves us. Our focus must always be upon Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith, of our salvation. Uh, and so it should always be upon Christ. And that's why 1 John 5.13, John wrote, These things I have written to you who believe... In the name of the Son of God, so that, purpose clause, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, assurance of salvation is not a guessing game. It's not a guessing game for those who have trusted in Jesus as their Savior, but is a confidence that is rooted in the revelation of God's Word. For those of us who have trusted in Jesus as our Savior, believing he died for our sins, was buried and raised again on the third day, we have eternal life. Now listen, when I sin, I know several things are true. I know at least three things are true when I sin. Uh, I know one, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when I sin, I know that I, it, I'm out of fellowship with God, but I'm not out of relationship with God. I'm still a child of God. I may be a prodigal son briefly or for a period of time, but I know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Two, I know that if I continue in my sin, I know what will happen. Uh, Hebrews 12.5 makes it very clear. He whom the Lord loves, he disciplines like a father his own son. And he scourges every son whom he receives. Pasawios, every child, if you live long enough, you're going to get scourged. You're going to get skinned alive. Uh, welcome to Christianity. I've had about three or four skinnings uh, throughout my lifetime, and they're quite painful. But if you operate in status quo carnality for a period of time, for a prolonged period of time, God will discipline you as a child. Now, the writer of the Hebrews goes on, he says uh, that God does not discipline uh, it, that if you are not a child of God, uh, that, that if, then, then uh, basically God doesn't discipline the devil's children. He only disciplines his own. Uh, and he says, um, and so that's something we've covered before. You can look at that. But I know that if I stay out of fellowship with God, I know that I am subject to divine discipline. And I know the third thing is, is that if I confess my sin... I know that he is faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness, and so I can be brought back into fellowship with the Lord. And I like, and trust me, I, can, I have to stop and confess my sin several times a day, whether it's mental attitude sins, verbal sins, sins of the flesh, sins of omission, sins of commission, whatever they happen to be. And so I, have to, I want to try to log as much time in the Spirit as I can. Now, according to Zane Hodges, he said it should be said here that all true assurance of salvation and eternal life must rest on the testimony of God, for only that testimony has full reliability and solidity, end quote. 
And I like Zane Hodges. He's a pretty solid teacher. Now, uh, what about Calvinists and Arminians? Uh, what do they generally believe? Well, very simply, Arminians are those who believe they are eternally secure in Christ as long as they remain faithful in their walk with God. And by the way, I grew up in a Pentecostal church for a few years when I was a young boy in Southern California. We weren't quite snake handlers, but we were pretty close. Uh, but it was pretty entertaining from week to week. And we were at church several times, and they ran three, four-hour sessions. A lot of emotional theatrics, not really a whole lot of doctrine. But um, uh, but nonetheless, I was taught that I could, you know, I could lose my salvation. In fact, I, I went through a period of time where I I thought every time I sinned, I lost my salvation. It was terrible, absolutely terrible, very, very grievous. And eventually, I just threw up my hands in frustration because I thought this is impossible. Um, But there are those who believe uh, that they are eternally secure as long as they remain faithful in their walk with the Lord. Now, like Catholics, uh, Arminian, uh, those who hold to Arminian theology believe that faith plus works equals salvation. Uh, That's what they believe. Now, they believe that their salvation can be lost due to intentional, uh, egregious, or ongoing sin. Therefore, they, can, they cannot have assurance because there's always the chance that they may turn away from God and forfeit their salvation. And so that is their view. Now, this stands in contrast to the Calvinistic doctrine of perseverance of the saints, which teaches that those whom God has chosen will persevere in faith until the end. Now, Calvinists believe that God gives his elect a special kind of faith uh, that guarantees that they will persevere to the end of their lives and be saved eternally. However, knowing they are among the elect is always a question in their minds that cannot be finally answered until they die. You see, Calvinists also believe that one can have a spurious faith uh, or a deceiving faith that you can think that you're saved. But, uh, but see, what they look at is they look at the fruit production of, of, of an individual's life. So by the time you get to the end of your life, if you commit some ongoing egregious sin or if you turn away from the Lord, their theology would say that you were uh, uh, never saved to begin with. And so they have to believe that you will per- persevere till the end. Now, if they have persevered until the end, not having denied the Lord and continued in good works, then they, uh, then they can know that they were among the elect at least according to their theology. Now, if they fall into serious and prolonged sin, especially to the end of their lives, it strongly argues that they were not among the elect who are said to persevere until the end. I found this interesting quote by Kenneth D. Keithley. Uh, He says, quote, Arminians know they are saved, but are afraid they cannot keep it. While Calvinists know that they cannot lose their salvation, but are afraid they do not have it. (laughs) And, uh, and he's absolutely correct. It's a very clever statement, but it's absolutely true. Norman Geisler, another Bible teacher I like, he says, quote, Arminians and strong Calvinists have much in common on this issue. Both assert that professing believers living in gross, uh, unrepentant sin are not truly saved. Both insist that a person cannot be living in serious sin at the time of his life, uh, at the time of the end of his life, if he is truly saved. And both maintain that no, that no one living in grave sin can be sure of his salvation, end quote. And that's taken from his Systematic Theology, um, uh, Volume 3. But he's correct, because as far as the Arminian and the Calvinists, they have really no assurance of salvation. 
they have no assurance of salvation. And uh, both positions are theologically incorrect. Uh, So though Christians may to some degree advance spiritually by learning and living God's word and bear fruit uh, of the spirit in their lives, this will never be consistent because the taint of sin is also present in the life of every Christian and this to varying degrees. Um, Because even though we are born again, even though we have a new nature, even though we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we also retain our sin nature. And that means that there are times where Christians can operate in status quo carnality and be governed by their sin nature and can produce every sin that the unbeliever can produce. I mean, look at 1 Corinthians. These are saints. But you read their letters and, uh, and you see that they had a lot of problems with carnality. And this just demonstrates that a believer can live uh, in gross sin and still be a believer. Now, you're subject to divine discipline until you grow up. Uh, and hopefully that's an impetus to make that happen. But again, uh, we will also see uh, sin present in the life of every Christian, and again, this to varying degrees. Uh, Christians are never free from sin, not in this life. Now, as we advance spiritually, we will sin less. That is true. Uh, We will sin less as we advance spiritually, but we will never reach the place of sinless perfection. And really, God never promises to make us completely sinless during our time on earth. So consistency of performance is lacking. Because of our imperfect knowledge and imperfect life, our ability to analyze ourselves accurately will not always be consistent. And that's absolutely true. And so my point is, if you're wanting assurance of salvation, you have to look to God and you have to look to his word. And you have to take in enough of the word of God... Uh, to let you know that you have eternal life, that this is something that cannot be lost. Uh, And this takes time to learn. Now, John Walvert, another really good Bible teacher, he says, the difficulty is that human experience may be far from a norm, may be inaccurately analyzed, and may be made the basis of an induction, which in the last analysis is based only on fragmentary evidence. He says the only sure basis for salvation is the promise of God in the inspired word of God, which properly accepted by faith gives validity to our assurance. One clear promise sustained by thus says the Lord is better than a thousand testimonies of human conviction without a specific ground. A proper doctrine of assurance of salvation is therefore inseparable from a belief in the inspired word of God, end quote. <laughs> and I love that about it. It's in, and Walvert was a, a great teacher. He passed a few years ago, and we lost a good man of the faith. But he's correct. Uh, now, going on in the notes here for the sake of time, the word of God is the objective basis of, uh, for what we believe, and our focus should always be on learning and living his word so that we can expunge any false ideas and properly calibrate our thinking to align with his divine revelation. Listen, a lot of the Christian life, as we begin to grow up and advance to spiritual maturity, is about doctrinal orientation. It's about taking in divine viewpoint and expunging and eradicating all that human viewpoint that we jammed into our thinking for many, many, many years. And it listen, it's not going to be expunged overnight. It takes time. Uh, but uh, as we learn, uh, we will eventually get to the place where we can expunge any false ideas and properly calibrate our thinking to align with his divine revelation. 
And to re and listen, our, my thinking needs to be recalibrated on a daily basis. That's why I'm constantly taking in the word. Uh, and so we're looking specifically here at eternal life. Now, Jesus said that we have eternal life and will never perish. Therefore, there is no danger of us losing our salvation, for there is no condemnation. Again, Romans 8, 1, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Romans 8, 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. I don't care if a thousand people bring charges against you. If God is the one who justifies and he declares you just because your sin has been placed upon Christ and 2,000 years ago Christ was judged upon the cross and bore the penalty for our sin. That's called penal substitutionary atonement. Penal, he bore the penalty for our sin. Substitutionary, he died in our place, the just for the unjust. And he atoned for our sins by his shed blood upon the cross. He paid the penalty. And so as a result, when we trust in Christ, then the very righteousness of God is then imputed to us. It is credited to our account, and we are in possession of the righteousness of God. And if God declares you justified, you are justified, because God is the only one who matters. And remember, what the righteousness of God approves of, the justice of God blesses. And the, and the righteousness of God approves of the righteousness of God. He approves of his own righteousness. He gave you his righteousness. He approves of that. And what the righteousness of God approves of, the justice of God uh, blesses. And what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God will condemn. And the righteousness of God rejects uh, human works. Because it does not measure up to the perfect standard of God's righteousness. And we'll talk about this more when we get into the doctrine of imputation. But who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Now the matter of our eternal destiny was settled at the cross when Jesus paid the penalty for all our sins. And Jesus' work on the cross was perfectly applied to us. At the moment, we trusted in him as our Savior. Our salvation, our eternal destiny, was a one-and-done deal. Because trusting in Christ is a single act. It occurs at a moment in time. It's like being born. It's a one and done deal. You are not in a constant state of being born. That's a horrendous idea. Uh, but it's a one-time deal. And so you trust in Christ and that's it. Now there is a subjective aspect to salvation. And I'm going to run a few minutes over, but bear with me. Christians who are advancing spiritually may enjoy a subjective assurance of their salvation. Paul wrote in Romans 8.16 that the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. According to William MacDonald from the Believer's Bible Commentary, he says the Spirit himself bears witness with the Believer's spirit that he is a member of God's family. MacDonald goes on, he says he does, this, he does it primarily through the Word of God. As a Christian reads the Bible, the Spirit confirms the truth that because he has trusted the Savior, he is now a child of God, end quote. And I love that. He's, he's, he's absolutely right. Because everything goes back to the objective truth. Now, this experience is valid only for believers who are in submission to God, learning and living His Word, walking by faith, and advancing to spiritual maturity. Now, here in the weeks ahead, we are going to spend probably several weeks, I suspect, talking about uh, the advance to spiritual maturity. I had a whole chapter of that I included in my book called Tares Among the Wheat. 
And uh, we spent some time on that back then when I was teaching through that as well. But we'll talk about that again. Now, as believers, we have been born again. We have been made alive spiritually, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 22, and we are new creatures in Christ Jesus. At the moment of salvation, God the Holy Spirit indwells us and gives us a new nature that for the first time in our lives has the capacity and desire to obey God. And Paul wrote of his new nature in Christ when he, when he said in Romans 7.22 that I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Now he talked about another uh, member in his body. He said, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. And that's Romans 7.21. Uh, but he says, I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man. So there's always this civil war that's going on, but we have a new nature. That's part, of our Christian, that's part of our Christian experience, you see. Now, since we have the Spirit within us, as well as new spiritual life, it is natural to expect that there will be some change in attitude and behavior. The degree to which this change occurs, in part, depends on our staying positive to the Lord. You see, positive volition is always the key. Because when you're positive to the Lord, you want to know him and, you, and you're, going to, you're going to study his word. You're going to be committed to learning the scriptures. I'm going to quote John Walvert again here, and this is a quote taken from Bibliotheca Sacra, a theological journal. He says, quote, The ground of assurance as stated in scripture is something more than an intellectual comprehension of the theology of salvation and more than a conviction that the terms of salvation have been met. Scriptures make plain that there is a corresponding experience of transformation which attends the work of salvation in a believer. Some aspects of this are non-experimental, but the new life in Christ is manifested in many ways. The believer in Christ possesses eternal life and a new divine nature which tends to change his whole viewpoint. He is indeed a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, they are become new. The believer in Christ is indwelt by the Spirit of God, which opens a whole new field of experience, of spiritual experience. He now knows what it is to have fellowship with his heavenly Father and with his Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. His eyes are open to spiritual truth. And the scriptures take on a true living character as the Spirit of God illuminates the written word. He experiences a new relationship to other believers as he is bound to them by ties of love and common faith and life. The believer is relieved from the load of condemnation for sin and experiences hope and peace such as is impossible for the unbeliever. His experiences include deliverance from the power of sin and from the opposition of Satan. He enters into the joy of intercessory prayer and experiences answers to prayer. The new life in Christ therefore provides a satisfying and biblical new experience, which is a confirming evidence of the fact of his salvation and a vital and true basis for assurance. End quote. And what he's talking about there is the experiential aspect of the Christian life that belongs only to the maturing believer. The believer who is doctrinally ignorant doesn't have enough doctrine in his soul to come in out of the rain. He just doesn't know enough. And so he has to learn the word of God and he has to get into it and he has to take it in. 
Take it in. Take it in. He's got to be faithful to study, to show himself approved unto God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And as he takes it in, he develops this doctrinal fortress in his soul, and it it creates a stability within him, but he will come to this doctrinal viewpoint, and it will literally shift his whole worldview on literally everything, and he will frame life from the divine perspective. And we've talked about this at length as well. So this is material for you. You've been with me long enough. You know what's going on. Uh, Now, uh, closing out, last paragraph here. I didn't go over too bad, so not too bad. As Christians, our assurance of eternal life is first and foremost based on the salvific work of Jesus on the cross. That is an objective fact. And the revelation of Scripture that we who have trusted in Christ as our Savior may know, may know that we have eternal life. Now, this, this assurance is objective, And it is constant because God's word is sure and does not change. Now, that will close out this particular section. We may come back and we may revisit this at some future time. Uh, But that will close out uh, tonight's lesson on the subject of assurance. Uh, Do we have any questions? over tonight's study. And I see Dr. Boone has joined us. Good evening, sir. Uh, Linda, you have a question. Go ahead. Oh, no, I don't. I'm sorry. Okay, that's all right. I've never used this before, so... (laughs) That's all right. Uh, Paul, did you have a question, bud? No, it was pretty straightforward. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty basic doctrine. But uh, you're very familiar with this. Uh, but you're you're very well studied, so you get it. Nancy, Nancy, you have a question. I, well, I I wanted to make a couple of comments. Okay. The description, the difference, the difference between the Arminian and the Calvinist. Those were excellent. Those are excellent. Um, explanations and um, and then also the description of what happens to you when you become a believer mm-hmm. um, I mean it was like word for word description mm. of myself mm. when I became a believer I mean my mind my whole way of thinking totally changed Almost in an instant. Yeah. And um, my assurance that I had salvation and my fellowship with with other believers. I mm. mean, it was it was incredible to me, and also my desire to be in God's Word all the time. I mean, it just it was something that just happened so suddenly. I was, you know, I mean, I loved it, but I was surprised at mm. how it could have totally changed my mind. Yeah. On everything. Yes. And your experience is, is, uh, is common. And, and, of course, you had the privilege of studying under Dr. Danish, who uh, was in seminary with Theme at the time, so a very doctrinally right. sound man. So you had the privilege of studying an, under an outstanding Bible teacher. So that's, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's a blessing there, too. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, Nancy. I love that. 
And uh, Carol, did you have a question or comment? Not a question. It's just that you've assured me that I'm assured. <laughs> Thank you for that. I love that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I have a question, Steve. Uh, Wilbert, yes, sir. Go ahead. This is Paul. Oh, this is Paul. Go ahead, Paul. Yeah. So, do you think uh, Arminians uh, who believe that um, uh, they can lose their salvation? Do you believe they're saved? Uh, I think... I have to maintain it. They have to maintain it. Well, uh, here's, here's, here's my thought on that. I think that there are people in, uh, in Arminian churches and Calvinistic churches. I even think there's some people in, Catholic, in Catholicism that are truly saved. I think what happens is, is at a very young age, when life is simple... Uh, they walk into church and and they hear John three sixteen and in childhood faith they believe in Christ. Now afterwards, I think they get into some serious doctrinal disorientation when they take in all sorts of false teaching, and I think it, I think it winds up creating a lot of problems for them. But I think there are people who are saved in these uh, in these denominations. I think uh, I think just as they advance, I think they get uh, I think they get wrapped around the axle on some of these doctrinal issues. Uh, what's your thought on that? Do you do you agree with that, or what's your thought? I think they're inadvertently saved. <laughs> I would agree. I would agree. I would agree. And and again, it's one of those things where hopefully they'll have some uh, some Bible knowledge at some uh, future time whereby they can they can come out. I did. I was caught up in a very legalistic system when I was younger. It was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. Love love your question though, Paul. Winnie, you had a you had a question or comment? It's her husband, Judd. Judd, hello, Judd. Good to see you, buddy. Remind us of Colonel Theme. Oh, very. You you picked up the ball from him and carried it forward. So thank you very much. Well, thank you. That's a huge compliment. I appreciate that. Yeah, he had a tremendous influence on me for many years, and of course, some of the vocabulary, and just the love of the languages and history and theology. I mean, those things were things that I think he instilled in me and um, really, really impacted me. Um, so I appreciate that. Thank you for your for your comment. I much. Much appreciated. Wilbert unmuted. Yeah, and um, I, I like your comments about Calvinism and Arminianism because I think most Protestants that know something about the faith mm-hmm. are under the false impression that that's the dichotomy. You're either an Arminian or a Calvinist. Yes. And I think both systems are equally wrong, and I think the way you explained it is correct. Hmm. They both are really saying the same thing in different ways, which is wrong. I, yes, I would agree, and thank you for that. And you're right, people do think that that is the dichotomy there, that you're one or the other, and they want to slot you. You know, as soon as you say, oh, you know, if you disagree with them on a oh, you're one of those. Well, no, it's a little more nuanced than that, but yeah, I, no, I agree with you. I, yeah, I think those who, who do advance do do come to that, and they, they do understand that. So I would agree. And uh, Wilbert, you had a question. Will? Uh, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you, Will. Hey, no, more of a comment, Dr. Cook. I think I'm just going to be uh, coinciding with a couple of the comments I heard here, especially the part where you went... As you see, I got all your notes here, the uh, subject of assurance. And um, when you talked about uh, by the Holy Spirit, which opens a whole new field of spiritual experience, that's something that us as believers 
have to take a grasp of that, that once we become born again, we're not like connected to like two worlds. Mm-hmm. You know, to, you know, we're connected to the spirit realm through God and the Holy Spirit, but yet we're still connected to this world. You know, mm-hmm. and once that happens to a believer, it's like everything changes. You don't know what happened inside of us, but mm-hmm. we do know that something did happen, you know? Yeah. So I'm reading all these notes, and again, just another, just another great class. Just uh, another great class. Thank yeah. you so much. Appreciate that. I think that, thanks, Will. Yeah, I think of uh, the... I think of the passage, we talked about it before, where, uh, you know, Jesus was walking on the uh, road to Emmaus with the two disciples, and he's giving them the Bible lesson of a lifetime, uh, you know, right. for, for several hours. And um, and they get to their destination, and of course, he reveals himself, and then he disappears. But then they begin to talk to each other, and they say, you know, did not did not our hearts burn within us while he was right. explaining the scripture. And I, I think that's part of the Christian experience. I think that's something that as we take in the word of God, uh, that we can have that similar experience. Because I'll be honest, when I get exposed to Bible doctrine, it fires me up. Um, yeah, I mean, it just lights me up. I just, I get pretty jazzed. <laughs> but I think that's part of that spiritual experience that we have as Christians. So, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great mm-hmm. class, by the way. Great, great Thanks, class. buddy. Thank you. And Susan, you had a you had a question? Just a comment. Um, I just wondered if you ever experience this. Uh, you talk about, um, well, if you're a believer and the other, the man that just spoke made an excellent mm-hmm. observation about the fact that we are connected to two worlds. And as the world we're in here gets worse and worse, the more if we are out of fellowship for any length of time, it's almost violent. It's, in other words, the change. Mm -hmm. Um, I notice that if I start concentrating on the wrong things and not keeping my eyes on Christ, I get depressed and I get caught up with the worries of this world. And when that happens, there's a whole bunch of attitude changes and and different things that occur that, and I'm miserable. Mm-hmm. And I think all kinds of thoughts, like, is God really true? And mm-hmm. I mean, I just go, yeah, right, right down the sink. And then I remember, no, this is wrong. And, mm-hmm. and then I rebound mm-hmm. and I confess my sins and come back. And it's like, but but the change is almost violent. It's like it's not just um, it's not a casual. Well, I just thought that way, but now I think this way. It's like my neck is being wrenched around. Mm-hmm. I go in one direction and it is so wrong, mm-hmm. and I'm so miserable. And then boom, I come back and just I guess either the older I get or the more mature or something. That when I am at a fellowship, it's like it's like my bones are at a joint or something. It's weird. Susan, you are describing my Christian walk <laughs> because I wrestle with those. I, 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 as you're talking, I'm just sitting here thinking, yep, 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 yep. I go through those things too, and it is a wrestling. And I learned some time ago that the mind is the battleground. Oh, it, it, it is, it is the battleground. And I, and I think of in Second uh, Corinthians ten five. Uh, where Paul says um, that we are bringing every thought into, capti- into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And, and I learned some time ago, in fact, I was, I was writing at length on it when I set that aside and picked up soteriology, but, uh, but writing on the subject of uh, spiritual disciplines, because the Christian life 
is a life of discipline. It's a, it's, it's a discipline of mind. It's a discipline of will. It's a discipline of time that we allocate resources, uh, that we allocate our time properly, that we manage it well. And if you look at anybody who is successful in life, and I don't care if you talk about in the sports industry, uh, as a writer, in the business world, I mean, pick a field as a, as a, as a musician. Anybody who is successful uh, is committed and disciplined. Ah. And disciplined, and uh, and I think that that is true for the Christian life. I think that uh, that if we are going to reach that place where we have that uh, uh, predominant stability within our soul, uh, then we have to live that disciplined Christian life where we are bringing every thought into captivity. And I have to be very careful. My grandmother, when I was a little boy, used to talk about Proverbs four twenty three, which says that above all things, guard your heart. For from it flow the wellsprings of life. And of course, the Hebrew word lave there uh, corresponds to the Greek cardia. And it really, the heart is the mind. And she used to say that the mind is very much like a garden. If it's left unattended, weeds will sprout and trash will blow in and eventually it'll look like a dump. Uh, but, if you, but if you're going to take care of that garden, you must pull those weeds. You must pick up that trash and you must plant beautiful, beautiful things. And that stuck with me. My grandmother had a very apt way of speaking in a way that I as a child could understand, but it stuck with me. And I think she's correct. And I've learned over the time why I think of Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Torah is in the instruction of the Lord. And in his law, his instruction, he meditates day and night. And what's the benefit? Verse 3 says, And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. And you can almost imagine a tree with, the, with its roots extending down into the, into, the, into the river and drawing upon that nourishment. But he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water and uh, shall bear fruit in his season and his leaf shall not wither. And whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. And so it's that, it's that thing where when I'm plugged into the word and the word is plugged into me, I have that stability. Now, what happens is, is I get caught up in this uh, uh, trap where occasionally I'll, I'll wind up spending too much time watching the news or, or taking in, you know, uh, you know, things other than the Lord. And it can be anything. It can be anything. And eventually what happens is, is I wind up, well, Isaiah 26, 3, the mind that is stayed upon thee shall be kept in perfect peace because he yeah. trusts in thee. And when I'm looking at anything and everything other than God and his word, I, by my own decision, wind up forfeiting that peace. Oh, God, yes. And, and, and it's, if you want to keep your sanity, mm -hmm. you have to stay committed. Yes. That's it. Yep, I love that. No, you're spot on. I couldn't agree with you more, Susan. That's, that's beautiful. <clears throat> thank, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. <clears throat> Will, you had another question, buddy? No, just just following up on the, on the comment she was saying that um, I like that statement that you always repeat on here. And I have it said in my calendar where you tell us that the mental stability of the Christian is predicated to a large degree uh -huh. on the biblical <clears throat> content and continue always thinking. And you have it known by heart, right? <laughs> right. But... Very important for all of us, I need to understand that once we are saved, that's where the battle is. It's right here in our mind. Yep, and yep. And when the enemy comes to attack us with a lie, whether it's anxiety, whether, you, you name it, he'll throw everything and anything he can on us. But we need to learn how to master our mind, master our thinking, and say, no, 
that thought is not from God. And then that's where you go to the scripture. If you're suffering through anxiety, you could use, you know, Philippians uh, 4, verse 6, be anxious for nothing. Mm -hmm. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So I love the way you teach us here that our mental stability is going to depend on how much of this word we have in this mind that God gave us. God bless you. Will, that was beautifully stated, buddy. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. I learned it from here. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you, man. You stated it quite well. A+. plus. <laughs> Anybody else have any questions or comments? Nothing online. No? Stephanie, did you have any? Yeah. I yeah, okay. A, a couple things, but the, the gentleman that was talking about or asking about if, if you believe if there were people that were saved, like in the Catholic Church. Right. Church, Calvinist, <clears throat> you know, I've always believed that, yes, that's true, and, and like you stated, so it what came up to my mind was in Acts 19, when mm -hmm. Paul and Apollos were in Corinth, right. and uh, there were believers there, and Paul said, you know, have you received the Holy Spirit? Mm -hmm. And they're like, we don't even know the Spirit that you're talking about. Right, they've been baptized with the baptism of John, John right. Yeah, mm -hmm. he's like, well, what, what did you believe? Like, mm -hmm. what were you baptized? And they said, in, in the baptism of John, mm -hmm. repentance. And so and then he laid his hands on them, and mm -hmm. they received the Spirit. But they, they were believers. Mm -hmm. They were believers that believed in the baptism of mm -hmm. repentance pointing to Christ, mm -hmm. you know, Jesus. But they were, they didn't know. Mm -hmm. They didn't fully know. So, you know, I, I believe that too. These people can be in, in these different, if you will, um, churches or, you know, um, belief things and, mm -hmm. and truly have belief. Mm -hmm. But they're still, they, it's just um, like the word talks about milk versus meat. Mm-hmm. You know, Paul's like, are y'all growing? Are y'all still feeding off milk, or have y'all come to the place of what you No, that's exactly right. And I think of Romans 12.1, where Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. Well, how do you not be conformed to the world? Well, it starts from the inside out, right, where you are transformed. And yeah. the very use of that word implies an inside out change, yeah. that you are transformed. How? Yeah. By the renewing of your mind, right. that you may prove what the will of God is. And so rather than be pressed into the mold that the world would have you be pressed into, uh, you wind up resisting that from the inside out. And the word of God within you is that stability. And because you have new life in Christ, you have that ability to resist that pressure of the world. It can be challenging. But uh, listen, any dead fish can float downstream. But when you are alive... Uh, you are called to swim against that current. Mm -hmm. And as Christians, that's what we do. Right. You know, we stand against the current of what's going on culturally. Right. Now, we do it uh, uh, with truth. We do it with love. We don't do it with a fist-in-your-face attitude. Right. But we nonetheless go against the, the, the current and the trends of the world. And we are to be lights in a dark place. I mean, that's what we're called to be. So, yeah, no, I love, love that. I mean, the Arminians and the Calvinists, the, the section here, but also you were talking about being part of the Pentecostal church. And as you were reading all of that and sharing that, it made me think about, um, like you said, you were tormented. There's mm -hmm. torment in the mind. It's like that unstable man being tossed to and fro by mm -hmm. the waves, yep. like the word talks about. But that made me go back to Isaiah 26.3. Mm -hmm. The steadfast mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. And the thoughts that were going through my mind is that the reason that there's not peace or stability is because their the mind isn't focused on the complete and finished work of Christ. Mm -hmm. That the the salvation, the trust of it isn't within that. It's within themselves, mm -hmm. within their works. And because that is so unstable. Right. When I'm 
No, that's exactly right. When I'm focused on myself and the production of my works, there's inconsistency there. Now, I may see some fruit production. If I'm growing, I should see some. Uh, But the problem is I've got a sin nature, and occasionally I yield to that temptation or that pressure uh, from within or without. And, uh, and when that happens, I'm operating in status quo carnality. And at that point, I'm not producing the fruit of the Spirit anymore. And all of a sudden, it's just like, well, gee, what am I producing? And then if I'm looking to myself, I have no, I have no assurance. And that's why I have to have a mind that is rooted in the Word of God, because therein lies the stability of the believer. So I agree. Now, I love your comment. And I think that that's taught over and over again in Scripture, whether it's the analogy of, of milk and meat or Paul talks about the elementary, elementary principles mm-hmm. like you know okay we've covered the gospel which is awesome and necessary the foundation but you got to grow from there mm-hmm. you know that's where that transformation comes from it's like it's kind of like um, food if you're not feeding your body you're not nourishing your body your nails aren't going to grow your mm-hmm. hair is not going to grow like you're slowly you know what I mean yeah you're going to be malnourished right you're going to be malnourished you might physically be alive but you're going to be weak mm-hmm you know, I mean, all kinds of stuff. But if you're feeding your body, nourishing it off the Word of God, you're going to be growing and flourishing. Yeah. You know, sure. Love that. Great. Yeah. Thank you. No, thank you for sharing. That's great. All right. Well, if nobody else has any other questions, we'll uh, wrap it up with a prayer. Are we okay? Dear Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the freedoms that we enjoy, uh, that we can have this time to come together to study your Word. Um, And Father, we just are so thankful for the blessings that you bestowed upon us. Father, we just pray this evening as we uh, take this time to think upon these things, that this will become seated in our our thoughts. Um, And Father, that we will just rest in the assurance of knowing that our relationship with you is, is strong because of what Christ accomplished for us and not because of what we do for you. Father, we thank you for this evening. We pray that we will be challenged by the things that we study, that we might grow thereby. Father, we ask this now in Christ's name. Amen.